There are some biblical truths, dear church, that just need to be repeated. Last Sunday, we walked through Isaiah chapter 40, which is probably one of the most important texts in all of the book of Isaiah, maybe even the entire Old Testament. And I started last week's sermon with a statement that has proven really helpful to me over the last 15 years. It was this statement, it bears repeating, that Christians live by promise, not performance. Christians live by promise, not performance. Now, to understand that statement and to appreciate it, you need to do three things. You need to know that statement, know what I mean by that, what does the Bible mean by that. You need to believe that statement, yes, that's true, and then you need to live that statement. It's one thing just to know that Christians live by promise and not performance. It's one thing to believe that Christians live by promise and not performance, but it's another thing to actually live that. So we spent a fair amount of time last week trying to help us understand Isaiah 40 and how to know this truth, promise, not performance, and to believe this truth. But today what I want to do is take another step, kind of bridging Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 41, unpacking this concept that waiting is how Christians live by promise, not performance. Waiting is how Christians live by promise and not performance. There are many other ways that we live by promise and not performance, but one of the main ways is this matter of waiting. So before we get into Isaiah 41, let's go back to where we ended last week in Isaiah 40 and verse 31, which says this, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now just look at that verse for a moment in your Bible or on the screen. And what statements just kind of leap out at you. Perhaps you see the word wait and you wonder, what does that mean? Maybe the thought of renewed strength is just, oh man, I need that. Maybe it's deeply attractive because you find yourself coming to church today or watching and you're just weary, like bone chilling weary. Maybe you're fascinated with the image of an eagle that soars with the updraft of the wind. An eagle that's doing something, but it's not doing the thing that's making it soar. Or maybe the unusual empowerment that's identified here of runners who will not be weary and walkers who will not faint. Maybe that's fascinating to you, and rightly it should be. Of all of the words and phrases, however, in Isaiah 40 and verse 31, I would suggest to you that the three most important words in that text, the words that most explain what it means to wait and how we wait and why we wait and what the hope is in waiting, the three most important words are for the Lord. These words make the connection between are waiting and God's help. Waiting, by definition, always includes a for. If you show up 
someplace and you say to somebody who looks like they're waiting, hey, are you waiting? If their answer is yes, your next question is for the line at Target, the next spot in the queue in the TSA line. If they just say, no, I'm not doing anything. I'm just waiting, waiting. Waiting without a four doesn't make sense. Waiting without a four seems pointless. See, waiting and four are always deeply connected. So every human being waits. The question, particularly for Christians, is that we need to wait for the right thing and we need to wait in the right way. So the word wait, by definition, means to look for something. So if you think of Christmas season and you say, I'm looking forward to Christmas, there's an idea of hope baked into the word forward. I'm here and I'm waiting for something and the forward nature of the waiting means that there's something yet to come. It means, by definition, the Hebrew word means to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial, to have an eager expectation in particular of the Lord's deliverance. So based upon this definition, then God's people in their waiting are doing something really important. But the reason that it's important is because of the word for. So what I want to do today is try and help you understand how the word waiting and the word for not only go together, but they're liberating. And the hope would be that some of you, instead of thinking of this season of life that you're in as you can't do anything else, so you're going to have to wait, but instead for you to think about this, no, I'm actually choosing to wait because I'm waiting for the Lord. Other translations render this Hebrew word kavah as hope. That's how the NIV translates it. Or trust, CSB puts it that way. Those are good translations, but I don't think they get to the core issue of what waiting is and why in some cases it's so hard and difficult because waiting for the Lord goes the opposite direction of how we human beings normally think about the word wait. To wait for the Lord, to wait for the Lord seems more transformational because the word waiting isn't a naturally positive word. If you run into someone at church today and you ask them, how are you doing? And they say, well, I'm trusting, I'm hoping. We would say, good for you. But if you run into someone and they say, I'm waiting, you'll likely express sympathy. Hang in there. There's a natural negative bias when we think of waiting, and yet that's not how the Bible thinks about waiting at all. So rather than simply seeing waiting as something we ought to endure, the Bible actually commends waiting as something we should actually choose. A few examples, Lamentations 3, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. 
So the reason I'm spending so much time here is because this word waiting is vital to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, we're approaching a season, Advent, where waiting is a major part of that theme. And so we're going to unpack this even further during the season of Advent. The point of Isaiah 40 that then leads into Isaiah 41 is not merely the fact that you're waiting, but here's the thing. But what are you waiting for? Or maybe a better way to say it, who are you waiting for? And that makes all the difference in the world. It changes not only how you see waiting, it changes how you wait. Isaiah 40 verse 31 promises renewed strength, soaring like an eagle, endurance that isn't typical, but it only comes to those who wait for the Lord. So if you're in a season where you find yourself frustrated, if you're in a season where your desires, whatever they are, have been hindered, even good things, you want something good, something that it seems like God would want you to have, something precious, something important, something of all of the good gifts of God, and you're not being able to get it is causing frustration or anxiety or despair. Some of you find yourself even angry today, like this low-level frustration, and it may even seep into how you worship and how you think about God and how you read the Bible and even hear a sermon what I want you to know is that waiting is doing something. In your frustration, in the gap in which you are living right now, in the spot where you don't know what's going on, in the moment when you seem conflicted about what's happening, I want you to know that this season that you're in actually can be one of the most glorious seasons if you will wait for the Lord. And there's others who you're not in that kind of position no, but what you need to do is start downshifting a little bit in your life. You're so good at being busy and active and you're assertive and you get after it and you're aggressive and that proves to be so good in so many spaces except when it comes to your spiritual life. And one of the things I would commend to you is you not only need to learn to wait when you don't know what to do, you need to learn to wait when you think you know what to do. You need to learn to wait when you think you know what to do. Isaiah 40 and 41 are written to a people who are despondent, they're weary, they're tired. The exile in Babylon has taken now 70 years and Isaiah is bringing a beautiful prophetic word that God hasn't forgotten about them. And so what he does is Isaiah is going to litigate whether or not God's people should put their trust in the Lord He's gonna litigate whether or not God's people should wait for the Lord or whether that's some fool's errand. And so Isaiah takes him into the courtroom. He then presents a choice and then gives them comfort. Let me show you this. First, the courtroom. Isaiah 41 is designed to make the case that waiting for the Lord isn't a waste. Isaiah 41, in verse 1, God convenes a court to try the case of his trustworthiness. The text says this, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. In this first invitation, the world here is invited to make its case. 
Isaiah records the offering for them that they could renew their strength. It's the same phrase that we find in Isaiah 40 and verse 31. But the question at hand is, if you want to renew your strength, upon what do you wait? Or if you want to renew your strength, how is that going to happen? So just to be clear, every human being trusts or hopes in something. You may be here today, you're not yet a Christian. So glad that you're in, the, in church, so glad that you're trying to maybe discover what are some truths to put your life kind of together, maybe back together again. But you need to know every one of us trusts in something. The question is whether we are trusting in or in Isaiah 41, waiting for the right thing. As we'll see in a moment, what you hope in or what you wait for when things get hard or frightening is very revealing. And often the places that we go are to what the Bible calls idols. Because you see, waiting can lead to two directions. Waiting can fuel faith or waiting can fuel frustration. Waiting can fuel confidence and waiting can fuel callousness. So the question is, where do you go when you find yourself waiting? Look at Isaiah 41, 22 to 23. Here's another example of the court case. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's do good or do harm that we may not be dismayed and terrified. So what's happening here is God is inviting the people to the courtroom of heaven to consider what he is like versus what their other objects of trust, their idols are like. So what's interesting about this moment, this courtroom scene, is this courtroom litigation moment shouldn't be considered all that rare. Because this kind of litigating, this kind of deciding or debate, if you will, between who is really worthy of our trust, it happens all the time. Every single day, every human being in the courtroom of our minds are making decisions about who is really worthy of our trust. Sometimes it's happening really evidently in the front part of your mind where, you're, where it's really obvious. You're, you know you're battling doubts and you're, you keep pointing your heart towards what you believe. At other times, you might not even be aware of the choice that you're making. You just feel anxious or you feel afraid or you feel exhausted because that choice of who's really worthy of your trust is connected to something that happened in the past or some familiar pain and you just sort of developed a coping mechanism that whenever this happens, you know what to do because of how hard life has been. And part of the issue that we need to wrestle with is what am I waiting for? So in the last week, think of the things that made you nervous. Think of the things that made you angry. Think of the things that made you frustrated. Think of the things that didn't work, the things that were hard, the things that you wondered, what in the world? And think in that moment what it is that you wanted that you couldn't get. What is it that you desired? What is it that you were waiting for that you couldn't grab a hold of? And then think of this. And what did you do to try and blow through that season to try and get you what you want? Was it anger? Was it anxiety? Was it over-researching something? 
Was it talking about it forever, incessantly? And God invites us to court to consider who he is. So he lays out for us a choice. Isaiah wants God's people to see this comparison between the parties in the courtroom. So he's bringing the facts to the table. Go up to verse two. What I'm doing here in Isaiah 41 is I'm pulling various texts out of this chapter, putting them together under particular themes so you can see the message because it bounces back and forth between courtroom and facts and conclusion. So here's the choice. Look at verse two. God asks some rhetorical questions of his people and of the world. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble before with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? The obvious answer is it's God. And then he says this, I, the Lord, the first and, and with the last, I am he. So God is establishing his power. That's why he uses the phrase first and last. What he's doing here is he is offering a philosophical bracket on human history, and he's saying everything that is in the world is contained within this framework. I am the first, I am the last. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus says in the book of Revelation, where he says in Revelation chapter one, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who was, or rather who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. This, this, this statement is connected to the exclusivity of God. We'll see this in Isaiah 44, six, a future chapter, where it says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. What does it mean? Listen to me, it means that God was in your past, God is in your future, and God is right now with you. That the whole bracketing of your life and human history is all enfolded in the arms of God. He's the beginning, he's the end. He's the first, the last. He was, he is, and he is to come. In other words, everything in the world, God has got it. But the problem is, is we forget this. You say amen, we clap. Two hours later, something happens and you're like, hair on fire, oh my word! What's gonna happen? Or men, we may not make that sort of high-pitched scream. Instead, we just sit in our car and go, oh no. I need to watch a football game all day, every day, for 10 years. Because I can't handle this nagging thought in the back of my head that I might be out of control. Look at verses five through seven. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth, they tremble. They have drawn near and come. So th this is what we do when we get afraid. We, we become, listen to me very carefully, when human beings become afraid, we become more tribal and we become more idolatrous. We double down on other people who think like us so we feel comfortable or we double down on the things that we think give us control. Look at verse five. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, the word help should be kind of in air quotes. Everyone helps his brother and says to his brother, be strong. 
This was not a moment to be strong in ourselves. They're not pointing to God, not saying be strong in the Lord. It's saying, hey man, be strong, be strong, be strong. Don't be afraid. When they probably should have been afraid because they were waiting for the wrong things. And then idolatry, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He encourages the idol maker and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so it cannot be moved. So interestingly, they, 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 they set up nails and they pound the idol's foundation really strongly because you don't want your idol tipping over. That'd be embarrassing. It's ironic, church. People who should be scared are telling each other, be strong. People are making idols in order to provide for themselves something to trust in, but they're making their own functional gods. If you skip ahead to Isaiah 41, 29, you'll see this. Behold, they are all a delusion. These are the idols. They are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So this is yet another reason why the book of Isaiah is so important. It's written to a people, listen to me, who are experiencing hard and troubling circumstances. And that's when our idols are most likely to be seen. When hardship happens, idols appear. That's when we need to make the choice regarding who are we going to trust. In my mind, 2020 and 2021 may be known in global and church history as the year of COVID, but we might just be able to say the year of idolatry. Because when things get hard and when things got hard and when things still are hard, it's amazing. I feel this. I didn't know that thing was that important to me. I didn't know I could be so wicked and nasty. Even right now I'm driving on the road and somebody honks at me and I'm like, for real? (laughs) All I did was not pull out in front of somebody so you could, like the level of tension pulling into Eagle Creek Park and ladies walking her dog and I thought I would go. She pulled up and I was like, whoa. And then she stared at me, gave me like a death stare. And I'm like, like, I'm just going for a run, lady, please. Don't be mean. <laughs> Idols are the things that when removed fill us with anger or anxiety. Idols create an identity crisis. Idols shatter our sense of worth and meaning And in Isaiah's courtroom, he invites us to make a choice. And what I want you to understand is we're always making those choices. So hopefully what this sermon will do to help you is just to make you more idle aware that when you feel anxious or when you feel frustrated, to realize that underneath that are things that you want. And some of them aren't bad, but you just want them so that you feel safe again. And just being aware of that can be incredibly helpful because then you can apply the gospel to that. So third, Isaiah offers now comfort. So remember Isaiah 40 in verse one, the whole section here began, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. What we find here is the comfort offered to God's people for them to rest for them to wait in who God is. In other words, living by promise, not performance, 
doesn't just mean living by promise of what the future would hold. That's true. But living by promise and not performance means that I live right now in light of the promises that are true. The promises that have already been fulfilled through Christ for those who have put their trust in him. So here's how it sounds in Isaiah 41. But you, O Israel, notice how God talks to them. My servant, Jacob, I'm gonna put some emphasis here, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from, the farthest, from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Notice how God-centered Isaiah 41 is. So waiting means looking at my future through what I know to be true about God right now. Waiting doesn't mean I'm just looking for something to change. Waiting means that while I'm here in this position that I'm in, I'm rehearsing everything that I know to be true. It doesn't mean just rehearsing promises for the future. That's part of it. But it also means living by the promises that have already been kept. Rehearsing what's true over and over and over is what helps us to wait. In verses 11 through 12, the Lord promises that their enemies will not be successful. Verse 11, behold, all who are incensed against you will be put to shame and confounded. Look at verse 13, for I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I am the one who helps you. Some of you just need to let that phrase just sink into your soul this morning. The God of the universe who holds the whole constellation of the stars and the Milky Way in the palm of his hands says today from the inspired text, I am the one who helps you. Some of you need to let him help you. In verse 14, he calls Jacob a worm. He's not trying to be unkind, he's just saying that he's helpless. Fear not, you worm, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. There it is again. Don't miss all of the I statements. Verse 15, behold, I make you a threshing sledge. Look at verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Verse 17, 18, I will open the rivers. 18, I will make the wilderness a pool of water. 19, I will put in the wilderness the cedar. Verse 19, I will set in the desert the cypress that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. What Isaiah is arguing for here is you don't just wait. No, 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 no. You wait for the Lord. And that waiting is never a waste. And now we come to the key verse. Look at verse 10. Fear not, 
for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Those five promises are where we're going to end today, and I just want to get these into your mind and heart because these five promises are anchored in who God is and they are the essence, I think, of what it means to not fear, not be dismayed, a word for anxiety, and instead to do what Isaiah 40, 31 says, but they who wait for the Lord. So what does it mean to wait? It means that you anchor your life on the promises of who God is. I am with you means that you are never alone. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're never abandoned, you're never deserted. All of your sins have been taken care of in the person and work of Christ, and he promises you that he is with you. I am your God. It means we rest in the promise of who God is. I will strengthen you. God promises to provide the strength that his children need when fearful events and circumstances come our way. He's gonna strengthen you. He will help you. God is gonna work for you. He's gonna do things. He's already working in ways, thousands, even millions of ways that you don't even know about. So when you wait, it's not like nothing is working. It's that you're not working and said God is working. And that's a pretty good deal. I will uphold you. Means to hold his people up by the essence of his power as a righteous God. I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. So I want you just to camp out on that verse. Verse 10, we, we unpack this in May of 2020. But I want to unpack it just a little bit differently today and encourage you just to take these five particular promises and I want to have you turn them as to what they would sound like if they were a prayer that you were praying. And I want to encourage you this next week just to try this for a week. Put aside your adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication prayer form. It's not a bad prayer form. It's a good prayer form. But Instead, could I just suggest to you that some of you, you may need just to find a quiet place and to rehearse the promises of God that sound like this. This is you saying to God, God, I come to you today and you are with me. God, I come to you today, you are my God. God, I come to you today and you will strengthen me. God, I come today and I know that you will help me. God, I come today and I know that you are going to uphold me. And let your prayer time just simply be a moment where you're just rehearsing the beauty of these promises instead of litigating all of your anxieties and kind of rehearsing them and praying all of them through, which maybe is a good thing in certain seasons. It may be a moment where you just take the text where Peter says, casting all your anxieties on him and you just go, God, there you go. I'm not gonna litigate them, I'm just gonna give them. I'm not gonna analyze them, I'm just gonna say, yeah, here you go. Not just a few of them, one, two, three, I mean like the whole thing, here you go. And instead, to rehearse particular truths, God, you are with me. God, you are my God. God, you will strengthen me. God, you will help me. God, you will uphold me. Some of you don't need a bunch of truth in your life right now. You just need one or two phrases that repeat over and over and over. 
was a season in this last year where every Friday I would go out and golf. First guy off the tee all by myself. It was sort of the way that I just needed to spend time with the Lord, process, grieve. And as I was out, there was a particular line in a psalm that I just repeated over and over and over. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me until the storm of destruction passes by. I didn't need the whole psalm. I needed one verse. And part of the reason, to be very blunt and candid, I couldn't handle the whole psalm. Like my mind couldn't process all of the psalm. I just needed one little line repeated over and over and over and over. People who are in moments of suffering and hardship, you don't need a book, you need a couple lines to rehearse over and over and over. This is why in Isaiah 41, God keeps coming back to this, reminding them, this is who I am, this is who I am, this is who I am, this is who I am. Why? Because they so desperately needed to be reminded of who he is. Because their waiting was starting to leak. Their waiting was becoming something that they weren't really able to do because of their exhaustion and their difficulty. So if you find yourself today exhausted and weary, filled with anxiety and worry, you find yourself just overwhelmed with life, can I just invite you to take some moments this next week, open your hands before the Lord, look at your hands and realize the God of the whole universe has everything in the world, including all your problems, right there in his hand. It's a big deal to you and it's a big deal to him, but he's got it, friend. And as a result, you can open up your hands and simply say to him, God, you are with me. God, you are my God. God, you will strengthen me. God, you will help me. And God, you will uphold me. And rehearsing the promises of God is how we wait for the Lord. And when you wait for the Lord, he'll renew your strength. You'll mount up with wings like eagles. You go about your day and realize, the Lord's helping me. The Lord's helping me. I'm not doing anything except waiting on him and he's helping me. I'm praying and giving my anxieties to him and he's upholding me, he's strengthening me. You find yourself more connected to the Lord, more in love with him, more trusting in his ability to help you. He doesn't solve all the problems, doesn't bring a solution to everything. You still have to fight through and, and be persistent and consistent in what you're attempting. But at the end of the day, it means you're finding the Bible to be true that yes, they who wait upon the Lord, those who wait for the Lord have strength renewed because Christians wait and that's how they live by promise and not performance. Well, College Park, Jesus died and rose again, so he will be with you. So know that God's got you. So if anybody in the course of biblical history can wait for the Lord, it ought to be people who've seen the power of the resurrected Christ. So wait. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you are even now strengthening us. We thank you that you are helping us. And we thank you that you are upholding us. And so, oh God, we wait upon you. Take all of our burdens, our sorrows, and we lay them at your feet. We wait 
I'm the Lord. And so, oh God, renew us, we pray, even now, renew us for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.